welcome to the eighth episode of the Five for Fighting podcast. My name is Alec, your host, and today's guest was a lot of fun to uh, interview. It's John Craighead, and for those out there who don't know, John Craighead um, made ex- made his career in the minors for the most part. He ended up playing five games in the Maple Leafs and had a small stint with Vancouver out of their uh, or in their rookie camp and training camp, and <clears throat> fought a lot of uh, a lot of bad dudes in the days. He uh, we go over all of them. And you're a f- pretty funny story about how he uh, <laughs> how he had a Nazi number out in the DEL, which is the uh, German uh, Ice Hockey League. And, you know, I apologize if the interview sounds kind of funny on my end. Uh, we we just moved into a new apartment, and I don't have a desk or anything in this room, so I had to set up a um, – I called it my auxiliary desk. Um, so basically I'm, I'm just holding up the mic and talking to uh, talking to it there. I don't have it on this, the typical stand that I have, so – I apologize. Sometimes my sometimes my audio sounds a little bad, or if it you know pops every once in a while because I don't have the uh, the little the cover for it to prevent you know the wind or the P's and the T's coming off really loud on the mic. So I do apologize on my end. But uh, no, John was really good. I had a lot of fun with it, and I think you guys are going to enjoy this interview. But um. I want to say thank you for all the feedback I've had so far. So far, the feedback has been awesome on all the episodes. And, you know, I can't thank everybody enough who's, you know, supported me with the show. And, you know, Darren and William at the Fourth Line Voice, I owe a lot to them. They uh, they really helped me out kind of getting into the podcast game, giving me the tips and tricks and things like that. So I also apologize if it sounds kind of echoey. We have nothing in this room besides, you know, a few boxes and shit like that. So it, I don't think it sounded too bad. I went back and listened to a little bit of the audio. I had to do a little bit of editing. Um, John was driving a car, so at some parts, audio kind of got lost. So you'll kind of hear it if it edits and it sounds a little bit funny. It's just because uh, the signal got kind of weak. But um, other than that, I mean, like I said, John was fucking great. I had a great time interviewing him. And he's got some fun stories about just, like I said, some absolute fucking killers that were going around in the minors and the NHL and playing with Domi and Wendell Clark and stuff like that, you know, all these crazy household names, but um, I, I'm going to keep it short. My my back's kind of sore. It looks like I'm a fucking homeless person in here. Uh, I literally was sitting on the ground the entire time doing this interview and holding up the mic, going through drop your gloves, going through my paper and my notes and everything like that, but <laughs> nonetheless, uh, well, before I go, just do me a favor and well, rate and review the show. I think that's supposed to. It, Darren's told me it's supposed to help me out, so apparently it's supposed to help out the show, kind of get noticed on iTunes or whatever. So do me a favor, rate and review it. And also, speaking of Darren, go check out Fourth Line Voice. He just had an interview with uh, Ken Standforth, and he also just interviewed John over from the uh, Hockey Fight League. And I know some of you might be thinking, "What the hell am I talking about?" Well, that was part two. Well, I guess, <clears throat> excuse me, episode two of the Hockey Fight League. And basically, it's a fantasy hockey fight league that uh, I'm a part of as well. We're on to season two now, and it's basically just taking enforcers. There's no, um, there's no current game. There's there's a couple current guys in there, like you know Tom Wilson and stuff like that. But it's all hypothetical fights. There's a judge, and it's guys fight each other in their rookie, veteran, and prime status. And you can hear more info about it all from Fourth Line Voices, both episodes. His uh, first one with John. And then also the latest one he just came out with, which is uh, the Hockey Fight League episode two, or round two, I guess. I don't know. I don't know what he has. Whatever he has the title as. Um, but yeah, go check that out. And then um, 
go to the uh, Facebook group. I, you know, it's funny. I've had this podcast. We're eight episodes deep, and I have yet to ever mention the Facebook group that kind of got this whole thing started for me, which is, uh, if you look it up on Facebook, it's called Best Enforcers and Hockey Fights. And we're almost at, uh, where are we at? We're almost at 4,500 members in the group. And it started out as me just posting everything, trying to get the group going. But now it's gotten to the point where the group pretty much runs itself posting stuff and you know we run a little I, I won't say a tight ship but there's pretty much no nonsense on there you know like people disrespecting former players and shit like that we we kick him out pretty quick and it's me and actually john from the hockey fight league and then john over in the uk <clears throat> our moderators along with uh screwy st louis which by the way he also has an interview with fourth line voice you could check out but yeah well screwy screwy the moderator and he's funny he'll fuck with the people who like to promote their shit and by promoting their shit i have no i have no issues on the page with promoting anything hockey fight related but it's people who like uh, scammers who will you know work their way through the cracks and screwy will sit there and hit the sauce and direct message i'm call, calling them out which is is pretty funny um but yeah, so go check the group out, and also I started up the uh, the old Instagram page for the uh, the podcast. So if you haven't followed that, go check it out. And actually, I made a Facebook page for it too. And again, you just look up Five for Fighting Pod, and it'll be there. It's the same same name on the uh, on Instagram, and then also I'm on Twitter as well. Also at Five, it's well, I have I've had to change it because Five for Fighting. So it's the number five, and then Four Fighting Pod on Twitter. So that's what it is, but. You know, follow me on social media or whatever. Shoot me a friend request on Facebook. You you can't miss my last name. It's Olin Salem. It'll look like just a bunch of fucking letters mashed together. But nonetheless, just, uh, yeah, go check all that out. And go check out Darren's YouTube channel at The Fourth Line Voice. Yeah, I'm always posting stuff from his channel to the uh, the group and on the Instagram page. And like I said, go check out William. And then he got, uh, oh, Obey the Puck shows back. Dan just came back out and talking to NHL 20 and, uh, the women's hockey league and stuff like that. And then he also got get the gate and the slew foot show. So go check all those podcasts out. Those are the ones I recommend. I personally don't like when people shit on athletes and, you know, pro caliber players, but all of them are pretty good about not doing that. And, you know, they actually keep it fun. And it's, I don't watch today's game, but it's kind of my way to keep it in the loop. And I know fourth line voice is the same. Uh, so those, those are my personal recommendations and the one I have, or the ones I have fun with. So, uh, Anyways, my back's hurting too much. <laughs> so we'll pass it over to John Craighead. Thanks, everybody. Hope you enjoy. This should be good. This should be very good. All right, and today's guest on the Five for Fighting podcast, a man who had 142 career pro fights, 2,996 penalty minutes, and former Toronto Maple Leaf John Craighead. John, how you doing today? Never better. What a pleasure to be on. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to uh, you know come on the podcast everything. You said you're out in Vegas right now, huh? I was in Vegas uh, for a brief little getaway, uh, but I'm now back home and on my way to practice, actually. Oh, okay. Awesome. Did you hit the jackpot? <laughs> no, I um, I paid the part of the hydro bill that's going on there in Vegas. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Very well. Or donated. Nice. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, well, that, yeah, that's, a, that's a fight I couldn't win. That's a fight I couldn't win, Alex. <laughs> it could, couldn't win that one, eh? <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, better luck next time then. <laughs> um, but yeah, so figure we you know take the time to kind of timeline the career here and hear some stories about some of the guys you fought. The list goes on and on here, so see if we can refresh the memory bank there and get some good stories from you. Sure. So, 
Well, you started off in the uh, the BC uh, Junior Hockey League. What was that like? Did you kind of um, was a typical Canadian kid skating around on a pond, or did you did you get into it a little bit later or something like that? Uh, no, not necessarily. Actually, I, pl- I grew up in the interior um, uh, from in BC, a small town called Sycamus. Actually, I think per capita they hold the record for the most uh, NHL hockey players. Uh, coming out of that town at 15, uh, you know, with the likes of, of, uh, of Weber and a couple other um, uh, superstars. Um, but there's a few of us that got to end up getting a cup of coffee out of there, or a population I think is seven, 8,000 people uh, per capita. It's supposed to be uh, number one in the, in the world. But uh, we, we grew up skating on the lake, Mare Lake, Shushrop Lake there in the wintertime. Obviously, times have changed with uh, global warming and so forth. The, the lake actually doesn't even freeze over anymore. Oh, wow. So we actually skated uh, during the winter times. Um, there and uh, had to play out of Enderby. Enderby uh, was the closest rink at the time. And then the actual town got together and we actually started rock picking and put a petition together to actually have a rink built in Sycamus. And uh, while I was there, we actually uh, had a rink built uh, when I was in grade six. Um, and from there, my actually my dad was a coach and an ice allocator and my uh, mom was a, the actual secretary of the league. So from there, um, we actually you know, ended up um, playing on a, at a couple of different levels. I actually didn't even know what rep or, or house was at the time uh, because we just played for fun. So um, growing up, we it was an abundance of ice, and, um, you know, and I think that's what happens in those small towns. That's all there is to do is actually play hockey in the, in the wintertime, right? <laughs> exactly. Well, I mean, it paid off for you because you managed to have a really solid career. Um and one thing I noticed, though, it's, it seems like, you know, your penalty minute totals didn't go up to you, your last year in the, uh, there in the BC League. And you, you went for because you had 38, 12, 38, and then it just jumped up to 116 in the uh, the PIM department. Was What made that year you kind of jump out? Did you start fighting more that year? Did you kind of realize it might be your shot to uh, be able to get to a pro team or something like that? Well, to be honest with you, the only reason I actually played in the in the BCJ is because I actually wanted to get a scholarship. Uh, you know, uh, I know there's a stigmatism in this um, uh, kind of like a reputation of uh, hockey fighters uh, being uneducated, but I actually was student council president of my high school and, and graduated with honors and was looking, hopefully, to continue my post-secondary education uh, through an NCAA scholarship or possibly um, even a, a Div 2 scholarship. Um, but unfortunately, my style of play and, uh, you know, my my background of, of, I guess, violence of a form of entertainment um, far exceeded my academics. Um, so when I actually played in the BCJ, I was, you know, uh, I, I actually well, I was in Seattle Thunderbirds camp with Dodie Wood at the time, and uh, they wanted to sign us both. Uh, and I said, no, I'm, I'm going to get a scholarship. I'm just here for some training. And they, they're like, what do you mean you're here for training? You, you know, you've had six fights in camp. I said, yeah, I'm just here training to go back to the BCJ. Uh, and they actually thought I was crazy. Um, <laughs> and I thought, you know, you know, <laughs> I, I, I didn't know. I didn't have a, a big following. I know my stepdad that got me into it actually grew up in Nelson and played uh, hockey with Danny Gare, and Danny Gare's dad was their coach. Um, but he was actually, um, you know, a, a minor junior player that played an old-school defensive style a rough, rugged type of hockey, and so that's kind of how I was taught, just to play hard and, and so forth. Uh, and it just didn't have that style for the the BCJ. So when I actually end up getting into the BCJ, um, the actual uh, physical part of the game was obviously not as demanding as the WHL. 
um, and I was actually even lucky to actually get a look. And it was actually my last game uh, playing for the Chilliwack Chiefs, where my son had just come out of as the first uh, father-son Chilliwack Chief before he signed uh, with Northern Michigan on a full ride in his senior year this year. Um, I was there playing for um, Eddie Pierce. Oh, wow. Near, uh, Calgary. And um, he had mentioned that there was a gentleman out of Louisville that was looking to come up and uh, and scout me to you know possibly take his role. He was a, a player coach uh, role with the Louisville Ice Hawks with uh, Warren Young, who was the who actually played for Pittsburgh. Um, and he was a tough guy, Mitch Wilson, very tough hockey player, and uh, could come out of Merrick. So he come up and scouted me in the BCJ and said, "I think that you can actually fill this role in the East Coast Force if uh, you're interested." And uh, that's kind of how I took my first step out of the BCJ into the pro leagues at 20 years old. Um, was uh, through the Hartford Whalers farm system at that time because they were actually affiliated with uh, the Louisville Ice Hawks. Oh wow, that's awesome, man! Um, you played in the league that actually, you know, I I think I'd heard of it years ago and I totally forgot it even existed. But the uh, the Sunshine Hockey League, what was that like down in West Palm Beach? Oh, what a treat! Like you know, you coming out of BC here, like with the with the weather and so forth, uh, playing your first year pro in Florida, I think I was playing for Bill Nyrop at the time, first American born to play for the Montreal Canadiens for 10 years. And um, we were down there playing West Palm Beach and Boca Raton, and uh, we were we had, we had showed up to the rink in shorts and uh, we're golfing in the afternoon uh, <laughs> and, and practicing in the morning. It was it was awesome. Our, actually, our promotions uh, for the general public, we were, we'd go out and the Zamboni would drop snow at uh, these dealerships and people would actually see snow for the first time in their life. And oh, yeah. Football fights. It don't snow down and, here, uh, that's for you sure. Know, it, it wasn't, exactly. It wasn't recognized as, as uh, you know, obviously on the hockey map because it was, the league had just started. Um, but we ended up winning a championship there. And um, I ended up getting an opportunity to uh, try out with um, McSorley uh, in Toledo. And that's kind of how I stepped into the East Coast. That's awesome. Um, yeah, it's funny you say that. It's it's the same thing for me. Like I got I got to go to beer league Wednesday and I'll go to the rink and you know shorts and a t shirt. <laughs> it's kind of nice. Um, so you you end up in Richmond and you actually have a uh, have a teammate on there that I wanted to ask you about. He was actually the very first guest I had on this podcast. One Mister uh, Jason Renard. What was it like playing with uh, Jason? Well, actually, Jason was a, a really good hockey player. Tough kid, big, strong athlete um you know it's kind of funny because um, i actually just reunited with him on uh, social media um we actually haven't had a talk but we've kind of briefly talked through some posts and so forth but uh we come from very different backgrounds and uh i think that um uh, he's a character that unfortunately didn't get the, an opportunity which i i think that he could have um i don't know his path after the, the sunshine league but i thought that um uh, we'd be seeing each other in, in later dates because he was definitely a real tough hombre at the time right um another teammate you had on there was uh ken blum what was it like playing with him well you know what uh, <laughs> blummer what a treat he was you know what he was uh, a little bit older than us at the time i was only 20 years old coming out of the bcj and uh, he had a little experience behind him. I thought he was about four or five years older than me at the time, um, or felt like it anyway. But he was actually a real glue. You know, when you're looking at teams, uh, you know, every team, when you put 25 guys together, has its uh, its controversies and, and its challenges. And, you know, you have to all gel at the same time to make things happen at any championship um, at any level. Like, if you're going to win a championship, regardless of whether it's the lowest level of pro hockey or, or the Stanley Cup, 
the team really has to uh, find its way. And he was a big contributing factor to that. He was just an older guy with a lot of wisdom that uh, got along with everybody and tried to make sure everybody got along. And if there was any issues that uh, we made sure that they were dealt with and didn't fester and then ruin what we had going. So he was a real treat. That's awesome. Um, I, I think John Blum was actually John Blum. I thought he was actually married to Mark Messier's sister at the time. <laughs> what a crazy story! <laughs> oh, yeah. Man. Um, so the, after Richmond, you actually end up in uh, one of my favorite leagues. Actually, is the IHL. How did you, how did that come about? Well, I was actually um, uh, playing in Richmond, and um, Bill Davidson um, was looking to buy the, the Detroit Red Wings at the time. He actually owned the uh, second largest glass company in the world, and I do believe um, the owner of Detroit at the time, um, Illich. Is it Illich that owned uh, Detroit back in the 90s? Um, anyways, the, the deal didn't go through, and what happened was uh, Bill Davidson, or Mr. Davidson, actually ended up buying um, Salt Lake City and actually moved Salt Lake City to Detroit because uh, he actually owned the Pistons. So we actually um, uh, moved Salt Lake City into the Palace of Auburn Hills and created the Detroit Vipers. And at that time, um, in that year, uh, that was the first year of the NHL strike. I'm not sure if you remember it. Um, and Rick Dudley was the coach general manager there. What, what a treat he was. Like, I'm telling you, this guy is just like hockey mecca for me. Like, he was just a second dad. Um, he just kind of uh, opened my eyes to um, what it took to, to be in the form of entertainment, uh, you know, in a violent aspect of it. Because, you know, unfortunately, uh, a lot of people don't like, um, you know, violence as a form of entertainment. And, you know, and rightfully so, your taste is your taste. But, um, being an athlete or, or being a warrior in, in that sport as a form of entertainment uh, has its challenges. And um, one of the things that uh, Rick Dudley did for me and what he did for that, that, that city and the Palace of Auburn Hills was actually just recognize um, each individual player and what their benefits and, and strengths were um, and was an unbelievable recruiter. Um, I think at that time we had uh, Darian Hatcher, um, um, Peter Bondra, uh, Shatan, Socora, um, Peter Savaglia, Lonnie Loach. Like, shit, we had an unbelievable team. Sports Illustrated actually ranked us the best team in the world at that time uh, when the NHL was on strike. And that's Holy when shit. Wayne Gretzky put that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's when Wayne Gretzky put that team together, the dream team, uh, to do that seven game European tour to raise money for all the retired hockey players that played in the WHA. And uh, when he heard that we were, you know, ranked the best team in the world at that time by Sports Illustrated, he actually um, had a said we, you know, we want an exhibition game against this team at the, uh, at the Palace of Auburn Hills. Well, it was standing standing room only, twenty two thousand sold out. Holy and, shit! And uh, Rick Knickel, yeah, Rick Knickel, oldest uh, walk on. Here's a trivia question for you: oldest walk on to ever sign in the National Hockey League at thirty years old for the LA Kings um, was in net for us, and uh, we beat them. <laughs> and uh, it was just absolutely, like, chaotic. The media was just eating it up. Obviously, it was a little bit of an embarrassment for the superstars in the National Hockey League. But that just goes to show you there's not that much difference. We're looking at 800 players in the National Hockey League uh, in the entire world. Less than 7,000 hockey players ever in the history of the game have ever played in the National Hockey League. People don't realize how hard it is to actually get a cup of coffee. And Wendell Clark actually just wrote a book uh, about a cup of coffee. And uh, what an honor to be able to be mentioned in that book, being a teammate of his in 96. 
people don't realize what guys have to go to to actually get an opportunity. And they think that just because you're a physical guy in the, you know, in that form of violence as a form of entertainment, that you don't have skills. But I'll tell you right now, you take any guy that's played in the National Hockey League that was an enforcer or a power forward, and you put him out in a Div 1 game, and you would think he was Wayne Gretzky. Oh, absolutely. The level of of talent that you have to have to actually even get on the ice in a practice at that level, you know, uh, it's just mind-boggling when you see these general managers sitting in their living rooms that buy their season tickets and so forth. And rightfully so, they're entitled to their opinion. But they just don't realize how elite of an athlete that they're talking about when they're talking about an enforcer that they say they can't play. Oh, absolutely, 100%. And I'm one of the biggest advocates for it, and a lot of people, like my buddy at Fourth Line Voice, uh, his podcast, all of us love the enforcer. And it's just, it, it, it's almost sickening to me the way I, some people talk about guys such as yourself in that role and how they're how you guys are perceived kind of and they're always just a goon or a duster or a plug, whatever whatever people like to say these days. But they would skate fucking circles. You would skate, skate circles around all these people saying that bullshit. And it's funny too, just yeah. saying, just when he's, they'll say uh, something like, you know, oh, they only played in, you know, the AHL or the ECHL. That's still top tier fucking hockey. You're getting paid to play hockey at a top tier level. There's no, just because they were in the ECHL absolutely. doesn't mean they're and, not good. And, and, absolutely, and I'll tell you right now that some of the toughest player uh, guys I've ever played about were uh, played against were in the minors. I tell you right now, one of the toughest guys I ever fought, and it was never on camera. It was an exhibition was Rick Hayward. Um, I, I'm sure you know him. He's an absolute legend in the minors. This guy's one of the toughest guys that, I, that I, I've ever fought and the longest fight I ever had next to Mel Engelstad, who was also, you know, a career minor who... Oh, he could have been in that pro- show easily, too. Yeah, like, like I, I, and, I, and that's what I mean. I Like, you, you talk to these guys and they think, like, oh, you know, oh, you didn't play in the NHL for more than a handful of games or, you know, you, you only had a contract with the Vancouver Canucks and you, you never got called up. And I'm like, well, hold on a second. Like, you know, I mean, you can take your shots all you want, but in 2002, the Vancouver Canucks were the best team in the world. Look at their record. Right. You know, they, they thought this was going to be 94 run all over again. And just for me to be in that team photo, you don't understand what I went through in my life just to actually get there. Regardless about getting a, a shift or getting a game, yeah, I got my exhibition games. But to sign a contract with that team uh, is, is something that you'll never understand, and I don't even want to waste my breath even, uh, you know, ex- trying to explain to you. you. You can't even comprehend the accomplishment. 100%. And that's it's funny because that's 2002 that you're talking about. And your career, just, just you as an enforcer, oh, fuck, I can't even. That's almost, what, 10 years of playing in the minors just to get to that that spot, you know? And including five games with the yep. Maple Leafs. It's just the shit you go through, the shit you and other enforcers go through to get to that spot alone is fucking mind-boggling. And it's a lot of things that it, it gets way too overlooked these days, in my opinion. Well, they, they don't obviously count your pro fights um, uh, in exhibition, but I had 142 pro fights that were actually um, uh, registered, and only two of those fights were actually in the National Hockey League. So here I've had 140 fights in the minors just to actually get that cup of coffee. And I'll challenge any one of those motherfuckers that actually talk shit about any guy that's ever been willing to challenge his own manhood in a crowd, whether it's 100 people or 1,000 people or 20,000 people, and stand in center ice and go toe-to-toe with anybody in the game of hockey. Like, a lot of these guys that, that talk their nonsense and talk their shit wouldn't even stick up for their own dog if they were if they were challenged. So, you know, I, I take that with a grain of salt for sure. And at the end of the day, uh, I, uh, you know, have all the utmost respect for all kinds of different players that were 
in that scenario or have faced the adversity and, and so forth. And the accolade that should go to them should be endless. Absolutely. Hey, you know what? They, at, the, at the end of the day, man, you had five games in the NHL. Guess what the fuck they didn't play in the NHL, <laughs> you know? So it is what it is, man. And like you said, you got to take it with a grain of salt. And it's good that you, uh, you know, have a good outlook on it and everything like that. And, you know, talking about your minor league fights, fuck this year that you were in your first year in Detroit uh, with the Vipers. I mean, you were just fighting fucking a bunch of just animals. <laughs> it's crazy. And you even fought your former teammate, Jason Renard. What was it like fighting Renard? Well, you know, at the end of the day, it's a business. You know what I mean? Um, right. uh, some of the guys that I've, I've had the toughest fights against I end up actually playing with and actually uh, being very good friends with, including Rick Hayward. <laughs> um, at the end of the day, um, when you're in that profession and you understand it, um, you're out there to do a job. And, you know, um, I've got young kids or I had young kids at the time. They're, they're much older now. Um, you just do what you got to do. And that's the will. You know what I mean? Uh, it's not all about the, the size of the dog. It's the size of the fight in the dog. And if you want to have get the respect and want to be able to compete at the highest level and you have a dream and your dream is still burning, you will do what you got to do to get there. Uh, they all, they say that the average career of a, of a hockey player is like four years or five years at most, while the average career for an enforcer is maybe one or two years. So to be able to be, right. to, be able to play for 13 right. years and do that job, uh, night in, night out, uh, you know, regardless of what level that you're playing at, I've, I took my hat to all those guys. Like, um, um, uh, Sen, Trevor Sen, like, come on, are you kidding me? This kid uh, is, is probably one of the toughest guys pound for pound that I've ever met, Was but was never given an opportunity and the respect that he probably should have got um, at a guy that was, what, 5'10 on skates? Absolutely. Absolutely. Fucking Sen's a beauty. Oh, that fucker could play, too. Sen was awesome, man. Yep, I, absolutely. And I'm telling you, like, it was kind of funny because as we get a little bit older, you know, the hockey forces with social media are having an opportunity to, you know, reunite and so forth. And, and you know, I tip my hat to you, Alex, for, you know, promoting something that, uh, you know, a lot of people, you know, don't see the respect in, right? They just look at it and think that, uh, you know, it should be swept underneath the carpet and not, never talked about. But it's guys like yourself that keep guys' legacy alive that uh, reunite us and I'm hoping one day that we could get a reunion together or, or create some kind of uh, uh, gathering where all the ex enforcers can get together and, uh, and show the respect that they have for each other. We never really hated each other. We all know that it's a business. Anybody that's been in that business for longer than three, four, five years know what it's all about. And, you know, and, and I, they talk about, oh, the fights are staged, this or that. There's a lot of fights that happen out of uh, disrespect. Don't get me wrong. I don't I always, I never liked every single guy that I ever had a tussle with um, because that's just all part of, part of the primal personalities that we do have as warriors. Um, but for the most part, over 90% of them, I respect all of them for what they do. Um, and, you know, you never look down on somebody that's played the minors their entire life um, because not everybody can get the, the big check and, and get the big stage, and, you know, throughout their era of their career, right? Absolutely, man. Um, another guy, well, you, you actually fought, fought <laughs> this first year that you have in, in Detroit, man. I'm just laughing at the list because there's just fucking crazy killers on here. Uh, you fought another guy named Steve Fletcher. What was it like fighting Steve? Oh, shit. I fought him a handful of times. He, he's actually, <laughs> this guy was probably one of the biggest guys I've ever fought. 
Um, and for whatever reason, my style of fighting actually matched up good against him. You know, I think he, he fought um, at 230 or 235. And at that time, I was fighting at 190 or 192. So I knew that he wasn't the kind of a guy that I could actually just go toe-to-toe with. So I kind of adapted my style around more of a Darren Langdon type style or even a Domi type style where, you know what I mean, you, you, you relied on balance and cardio. And uh, unfortunately, I, you know, I've, I, I hate to say it, I was a little lucky, you know, you know call it luck or whatever. I, I was fairly fortunate that the guy didn't hurt me. Um, but there was one time that... Uh, you know, he lost an edge and, and, and cracked his head and was knocked out. And I kind of felt bad because um, I didn't realize it at the time. I kind of gave him an extra shot. And um, But, you know, in when you're fighting for your life, when you're fighting a guy that's 40 pounds heavier than you, you kind of, you know, do what you got to do. But uh, I'm telling you, that guy was an absolute beast. And I, I'm not – I'm so really surprised. I think – did he have um, – was it him and Banksy that um, – had a shot with Boston, like, why didn't he ever get a shot? Right. He's a fucking huge dude, should have had a shot. Oh, like, unbelievable. Like, the guy, and, and not only that, he had the hardest shot in the league. It, you know, it took him forever, ever in a day to fucking get the thing off, but I think I remember um, uh, when I actually was playing the NHL, he was playing for Fort Wayne, um, in Fort Wayne, Indiana, for the comments, and I think he actually knocked out his fucking goalie, I think, in practice or something <laughs> with a slap shot from the blue line. Like, it was, like, crazy. Like, the guy was a, a, literally a specimen, right? That's insane. Well, That's it's insane. it's funny you talk about, um, you know, kind of an extra shot when a guy's down. And everybody on social media likes to sit there and think it's it's the code or whatever and blah, blah, blah. And the code has gotten so misconstrued over the years that there's, there's, there's a code, but there's not a code, you know. But when you're fighting like that and you have all that adrenaline going through you, and literally, like you said, you're fighting for your life, your job, uh, to be able to stay on the team and be still recognized, it's it's hard to control yourself. And, you know, you get a little hyped up in a fight. Anybody who's ever been in a fight will know the amount of adrenaline you got going through your body. So is it bad you gave him an extra shot? Yeah, maybe, but, you know, it fucking happens. It's a fight. It's not You're not there to play patty well, cake. I tell you, my, my opinion, opinion on that is, is one or two things. You know what I mean? Anybody that's actually been in a fight uh, that uh, maybe is not a hockey fighter, uh, you try to flick the switch on, and switch the switch the the switch off. So you're in full rage mode, fighting for your life, and then um, I'll flick the switch and say, "Okay, stop, don't fight." In, in a split second, shut that off in your mind. It's right. literally impossible. Right. And the quicker that you can do that, the better of a professional you will look. But I'll tell you what, okay, I do respect the guys that uh, can turn that off and not throw that extra shot. But you know when that happens? When the guy knows he's landed a great shot and the fight is over. He knows that, um, uh, that he hit him so clean. Now, a fighter knows when he's hit somebody clean that the fight is over, okay? So when the guy goes down, there is no need to give extra shots. But I tell you what, when sh- extra shots happen, it's usually because a message needs to be sent because the guy that actually took the shot was a motherfucker. And he exactly. deserves the extra shots because of, of something that he's done. Now, as a fighter, okay, I have done both. I've turned it off and not given the extra shot. But then I have given the extra shot, and you'll see it in the Bruce Ramsey fight, okay? And I'm not proud of it, you know, but I tell you what, this guy chopped my buddy in the face, Rick Hayward, after, our, you know, many years of playing and fighting each other. We ended up playing each, for each other. We were playing for Pittsburgh's farm team in Cleveland. And uh, this Bruce Ramsey chopped my buddy in the face and gave him a tri broke his cheekbone, broke his nose, and his jaw, 
okay? I fought him twice in that game. And four months later, I think uh, my buddy's face was wired shut. You know, um, uh, Hayward's face was wired shut. He was back on the ice before the end of the season playing in a full cage. We were in Grand Rapids playing against them again. And the, the motherfucker went after him. Like, here he is. His face is wired shut. I know Hayward was a dirty motherfucker, and he wanted to be, like, people wanted to kill him. I get it. But that's how he played, and that's how he fed his family. Like, he wasn't the most skilled guy, right? I'm, 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 he, he needed to play that way, or he would have never been in the league for as long as he was, right? Yep. Well, they went after him. Here he is in a full face shield, right? And um, so I, we have a little bit of a five-on-five line brawl. We tie up, and I tell him, don't throw any shots. Like, we're talking, right? I'm like, don't be throwing any punches. Don't be throwing any punches. There's nothing going on here. Let them sort that out, you know, because I, obviously I was worried that he was going to, you know, hit my buddy. His face was still wired shut. He just broke his whole freaking skull with a two-hander, you know, four months prior. And uh, sure enough, he goes to take a shot at me, and I counterpunch him, one-punch him, knock him out. And then I was so mad that I did. I, 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 you know, he was knocked out, and I, I hit him so hard I broke my wrist. And uh, probably the first time and the only time that he's ever been knocked out that bad. But I didn't feel bad about it because I tell you what, anybody that, that, that plays that dirty and that's willing to chop somebody in the face, like you're a fighter, you don't need to chop somebody in the face. You, 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 have, you have the right to fight the guy. The guy will, you know, you can challenge him and he'll step back and drop his gloves and have a clean go. There's no reason for you to come out of nowhere and two-hand the guy in the face when he's not even seen it coming, not even let him have a chance to defend himself. So to me... Guys like that get the extra shot. So I know that there's a rule, and I know it's a, this and that, and I'll tell you, you ask any fighter, that, that 100%, it's, it's, uh, it's about respect and so forth. But guys like that, like what Bruce Ramsey did, and I don't know him as a person. Maybe he was doing it because that's the only way that he could, you know, get himself a job on the team. But guys like that that do those kind of things, they deserve the extra shot. Absolutely, and it's people. People tend to think the code just pertains to just a fight. It's no. There's there's a lot of shit that goes down. There's a reason you wouldn't have done that if it wasn't a reason behind it. And the reason being, obviously, he two-handed your buddy. One hundred percent. And so the co- the you're code not, you're goes not in, through. I'll tell you what, you're, you're not you're you're not in the league if you're if you're just a total disrespectful guy like that. Because the legal just there's no room for you. They just they just get rid of you. Because there is lots of guys out there like that that are that crazy, right? They get in there and they'll just start two-handed guys. You, they, you just don't get a spot. They just can't have that kind of drama or that kind of negativity, right? But it does slip through the cracks. There's guys that are ride the fence and are a little bit wild and I think out of fear. Like, that's the only reason I think a guy would do that to another fighter, like a fighter to a fighter, chop him right in the face, is because he's scared to lose the, you know, the man-to-man fight. And so that, to me, that's chicken shit, right? You know what I mean? Go in, you get your ass kicked. You know, I've had my ass kicked lots. You go in, you have your ass kicked, you look up, hey, okay, good job. Maybe I'll get you next time, and you move on. You, you don't get yourself in a situation, especially at a pro level, where you think that you're biting off a little bit more than you can chew, and so you don't get embarrassed in a dance, you two-hand a guy with a weapon. Right. You know what I'm saying? So, so, you know, it is what it is. So, like, you know, exactly. there is that rule, but there is a, there is also a rule for the motherfucker that uh, is cheap. Like, you deserve to get your face smashed in, right? Absolutely. And that's what people don't understand is that game within a game kind of deal, and it's it's a mutual respect kind of thing. So, Correct. I, don't, I mean, I don't and blame don't forget, you all for fucking hitting them. 
people people that are they're listening to this got to understand you're, we're talking uh, violence as a form of t- entertainment here this isn't the wwe okay like people talk well is it fighting rio in hockey is it you know like how many times have i heard i've coached for 15 years i own a junior hockey team that you know that has gone to full cage and i've totally been in favor of it like you know what i mean the game has changed and evolved i understand that um but you know they're like oh you know is it real you know and so forth like i'm telling you it doesn't get any more real it's the only sport in the world you can have a real fist-to-face fight and not be charged, right? Oh, yeah. I, I'm a big fan of the UFC. You know what I mean? I was a black belt in Taekwondo. I was a Greco-Roman freestyle wrestler. I, you know, I boxed all my life. My uncle was a, a Canadian champion. Like, I understand the sport of fighting. And it's the only fight or only sport in the world that you can have a real fist-to-face fight and not be charged. Absolutely. And it's part of, I mean... It's part of the reason that hockey's so popular. It's, it's it's as popular as it is in the states, and not only in the states, but uh, well, I mean in the states, but also in the south. That's kind of what grew the game in the south was back in the '90s. You know, it was a lot more violent than people were used to. You know, correct. Um, it, it's sick, but people like violence as a form of entertainment. It's just the way it is. Like it's like a car accident, man, on the highway. Nobody wants to see it, but how many people slow down to have a fucking look? Oh yeah, and and if it was happening, you don't turn and look away either. It's just how it is. It's human nature. Yeah, that's right. So another guy I wanted to ask you about. You fought him while you were in Detroit, and I hope he's listening. And he's become actually kind of like a little bit of a social media friend of mine. Is uh, one Mr. Max Mittendorf. You know what? To be honest with you, um, I don't remember. <laughs> like I was telling you, I've had a lot of tilts, um, and, and there's some I remember and some I don't. Uh, it, it's not a name that strikes me as a, a guy that's disrespectful. So I'm for sure um, it's a guy that we've probably had a good dust up and uh, out of respect, uh, shook each other's hands or nodded our heads or gave each other a pat and uh, went and had ourselves a rest. But uh, it's not a, it's definitely not a disrespectful name that I've probably had to deal with. And you know, at the end of the day, um, I, I might be losing <laughs> some memory too. I, you know, like, if we had the concussion protocol back when we played, we'd all be get, be millionaires because I'll tell you what, <laughs> uh, there was no such thing as a concussion back in the day. We don't talk – you never talked about it. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? If, you, you, if your trainer held up how, how many uh, – <laughs> if, if your trainer asked uh, uh, how many fingers do you see, uh, you'd be asking for a cheat sheet because um, you never wanted them to know that you were hurt, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> oh, man. Well, yeah, Mittendorf, he, he wasn't really an enforcer, but he would drop the gloves when he had to, you know? So Mittendorf's a fucking beauty. Um, but one guy I did want to ask you about, too, he's one of my favorites of all time. A little bit of a crazy bastard, too, is uh, legendary minor league enforcer Kerry Toporowski. Oh, classic, this guy. I tell you what, um, we actually were in the, in the Maple Leafs camp together uh, with each other when they said that there was no fighting. And this is the first time that um, I actually met Kerry. I had fought his brother. Uh, what was his brother's name? Was it Shane? Yeah, Shane. I had fought his brother. And uh, we were in Toronto's camp, and um, at that time – um, actually, I was actually playing. Uh, I think I was on the on the team with Domi, and they said that they didn't want any any fighting in exhi- uh, in training camp, but they wanted to save it for exhibition. And uh, I was like, okay, fine, fair enough, whatever. And uh, Shane had come in and, uh, and had given a guy a shot, uh, and I had just come in to give him a bump, and, and you know, lo and behold, we end up having a, a little dust up in in training camp when we weren't supposed to actually be fighting, and. Uh, Got a little bit of heat for it and so forth, but what a gamer and what a class act. I ended up seeing him like 10 years or 15 years later at a uh, convention 
Um, I, I think he was um, doing a skate sharpening, uh, worked for a skate sharpening company deal or something that he was in, like some kind of sports edge or something. I'm not sure exactly what it was. Um, and I was there um, uh, for my other company for indoor playgrounds. I had a booth set up for uh, International Play Company. They built the world's largest indoor playgrounds uh, in the world for kids. They built for Disney and so forth, um, which I've got into outside of uh, the game since I've retired. But what a beauty he is. I actually uh, really like him, and we actually talk vaguely uh, from time to time on social media, but what a great guy he is. That's awesome. Your, your typical class act for hockey enforcer right there, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, I, I think. I think. Isn't it his? Isn't it his nephew trying out the National Hockey League or signed in the National Hockey League or something? Um, yeah, I think it'd be Shane's nephew. It'd be Carrie's Carrie Toporowski's son, Luke. I think he was just in the Jets yeah. rookie camp, but he he's in Spokane as well, just like Carrie was uh, back in like the I think it was ninety to ninety one. He was in he was in um, Spokane when he set that five hundred and five penalty minute record. <laughs> correct. Yep. Correct. Um. So, well, going on to the next year, well, I'll just ask you about one. I'll ask you about two here because I just, you know, I'm a fucking nerd about this shit. But <laughs> um, you fought a guy named Sasha Lakovic, or Lakovic, the late Sasha Lakovic. What was it like fighting Pitbull? You know what? What a great guy. And, um, you know, I, hope, I, I wish his, uh, his late wife was actually listening to this. He's got a beautiful young daughter. They live up in the interior. Um, and he obviously know he's passed. He had the brain cancer. Um, actually, when I first met Sasha, we actually uh, played against each other in Junior B when we were teenagers. We both kind of come from the same neck of the woods out here in BC and uh, end up playing for the Vancouver Voodoo with each other and then went on to play against each other in the minors. I was playing for Toronto's farm team. He was playing for Calgary's farm team. And, yeah, you're right, what a pit bull he was because at the end of the day, he wasn't a very big guy either. And uh, he wasn't afraid to mix it up with all the, the big guys. But, um I, I don't want to talk about how it ended because I got the respect for the guy and he's not even here uh, anymore to defend himself. He's up in um, enforcer heaven. Um, but what a what a great guy. Here's you know a guy that wore his heart on his sleeve and come from a real tough part of BC. And I had a lot of respect for him growing up as a teenager. And then what an honor to be able to fight him at a pro level. That's awesome. And yeah, it's 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 a shame what happened to him, unfortunately. And you know, my condolences to his family, of course. Um, of Love watching uh, Sasha Lakovic fights. They're fucking awesome. Um, but another guy you fought, and I always have trouble saying his last name, even though I've heard it a hundred times, but Andy, is it Bezo? Bezu. Bezu, yeah, okay. Bezu. It's that fucking, the, the E-A-U at the end always fucks me up. <laughs> well, I, you know, if he's listening, he's probably pound for pound the toughest kid that I've ever fought in my entire life. Like, the biggest balls. He actually led the International um, Hockey League in, in fighting pims with 500 and something back in the early 90s. I'm not sure exactly how many it was, but this guy was absolutely relentless. Talk about a guy that wanted to put himself on the map um, in a job where he didn't size up very well, but yet surprised a lot of big guys. And once again, he actually didn't match, really match up well against my up against my size, but um, man, he was fearless. And I, I, he's one of those guys you hate to play against, but you'd love to have on your team. Absolutely. So the next year, you go to the Maple Leafs. What was it like getting called up? Oh, what a dream. Actually, you know what? The, the, the night that I got, actually got called up, was, I actually uh, was probably, and I, I hope he's listening, <laughs> uh, because from what I remember, I'm the first guy that's ever kind of TKO'd uh, Dennis Bombie. And he was playing for Hamilton with George LaRock at the time, and I was playing with Bird Smythe, rest his soul. He's, uh, I believe, in the, in the hockey enforcer heaven as well, uh, Greg Smythe. 
Yeah, it was Greg Smith and I, and we played against uh, George LaRock and Dennis Bondi, and it was in Hamilton. And, um, you know, a, a bird dog fought uh, George LaRock, and I um, uh, dropped uh, Dennis Bombi and got called up right after that game with Kelly Fairchild for our first NHL games. <laughs> and uh, I think that we, we got flew into Buffalo, and I think that's the year, you know, remember when the clock fell in uh, in the middle of the ice? Oh, yeah, the, yeah, uh, yeah. Home and home in Buffalo. And uh, that's when I fought um, uh, the boogeyman in my first NHL fight. Yep, that's right. <laughs> Oh man, um, I mean, some of the guys on that that Leafs roster. What was it like, you know, with Wendell and Domi and guys like that? I think we had Matt Sundin on the roster at the time too, right? Yep, Matt Sundin, Dennis Popvan, uh, Murray. I, I'm like at the end of the day, um, it was a dream come true for me. I grew up idolizing guys like uh, uh, Wendell Clark. You know, I fought his brother Kerry Clark in the minors a few times, um, and then having the opportunity to sit beside him in a dressing room and lace him up with him. Uh, Domi was probably the, the nicest guy to me out of them all. What a great character. I got some great stories <laughs> maybe off off the air with him. But I'm telling you, um, you know, the experience and uh, everything was just absolutely fantastic um, in the in the whole experience. Um, getting the opportunity to play in the National Hockey Office for any Canadian kid is a dream come true. Absolutely. And, you know, like like we were talking about earlier, you know, it may have only been five games, but – that's five games more than 99% of the population, so fuck what anybody else says, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And uh, people don't realize how long the road is. Like, I wish I was, um, I wouldn't say punch drunk before I got there, but I actually, you know, basically had probably 100 fights pro- pro- even prior to lacing them up in my first NHL game. And then what I should have did, I, you know, I took some bad advice, but, you know, I wouldn't have changed it for the world. Uh, the year after I uh, played with Toronto, I was offered a deal with um, the Colorado Avalanche, and I didn't accept it. And I went on um, um, to quit hockey because my sister had passed away in, in 1998. Um, and then she left me two boys, uh, which was a very difficult situation because there was no will and no dads. And here I was trying to go across the line to play hockey, and the government actually wouldn't let me take them with me. So... During that whole mayhem, I actually ended up quitting hockey um, and then ended up getting a call late into the year uh, from a guy that you would recognize the name, good old Sergio Mameso, who was actually playing in Germany at the time. And I guess they had a, um, an injury for an import over there uh, in Germany and offered me a spot and said that we only have four months left in the season. Come on over and finish the season and get your skates back on. And I hummed and hawed and uh, decided, okay, what the hell? So packed the family up, went to Germany for four months, and it turned into four years. And normally when you go to Europe, especially as uh, the type of player that I was, you end up um, getting buried, and they, they kind of take you off the radar. Uh, but I wasn't done. I actually kind of left and went to Germany in my prime. And it kind of obviously preserved me, and the skating on Olympic-sized ice actually kind of helped my game. I ended up scoring 20 goals in the DEL. I actually played for uh, an ex-Toronto Maple Leaf by the name of Peter Inichuk. He played for the, uh, he defected and actually played for the uh, Toronto Maple Leafs for seven years. And he told me if I stayed out of the gym and didn't lift the weight all year long, he'd play me on second line and second power play. And I thought he was, you know, fucking with me, right? And I'm like, well, what do you mean? He says, it's a different style of game over here. I need you to focus more on your game and stay out of the gym. And sure enough, I did and ended up uh, scoring 20 goals, worked on my game, played with some, uh, you know, great, unbelievable athletes. Um, and then ended up as a 30-year-old uh, coming back, and uh, my agent at the time was Dave Tiger Williams, 
um, got me a tryout with uh, the Vancouver Canucks, and lo and behold, I uh, walked on as the oldest walk-on never to be drafted or scouted with the Vancouver Canucks to earn a contract. That's awesome, man. Yeah, you were you were tearing it up over there in the uh, the DEL. You were putting up points and some pims. It was fucking crazy. <laughs> well, it's kind of funny. I'll tell you a quick story about um, uh, Germany. I was over there, and being one of my favorite players going through the draft when I was younger was Eric Lindros. He wore number 88. I just kind of like that style of being able to score and fight, right? Um, you know, of course, I didn't like what he did in the draft. I didn't like, you know, some of the things that in the political world, but his game of hockey, I kind of had a, uh, some respect for. I love the Cam Neelys. I love the Wendell Clarks. That was just the style of play that I loved. Um, I actually wore number 88 um, over in Germany, and they were like, are you sure you want to wear this number? I said, yeah, please. That's my favorite number. Um, and they're like, oh, well, you know, I don't know. No, I said, no, no, 88's good. Well, in the first year, I was taking a lot of flack. Like, I had a lot of interpreters doing my interviews for me uh, over there and they kept asking me why was I wearing number 88 and uh, I'm like well it's because I was explaining the story over again it was like I, I, one of the players back in North America big strong tough score like you know great hockey player I just admire that, that style of hockey um, you know Ken Neely wearing number 88 I thought it was just it was a great fit and uh, they kept asking me asking me asking me well German was my second language in high school but 10 years later of course I didn't remember a lick right. and um, I ended up uh, uh, going back to school while I was in Germany and in my second year of uh, uh, in Germany I was started doing my own interviews in German and then, lo and behold the, the same question come up with uh, this number like why are you wearing number 88 why are you wearing number 88 I just kept asking like okay well hold on a second why do you guys keep asking me about this number it's been a year and a half now what is it about 88 that is a big deal for me to be wearing it in the league well finally I had a chat and I was having a beer of Varsteiner, to be exact, with a with German guy on my team, didn't speak a lick of English, and I was, you know, asked him in Germany, "Warum fragst du mich Nummer 88 jeden Tag?" So in other words, why are you ask, why are they asking me every day about my number 88? And uh, he says to me, he says they thought that you were wearing this number to take the piss out of them and mock them, um, because. Uh, back in the day, of course, in the Nazi day and so forth, there's uh, the, the Nazis used to wear swastikas. And then they were forbidden to be to uh, expose swastikas and wear armbands, um, you know, yeah, obviously in the 50s or whatever. Um, and then so what they used to do is they used to brand 8-8, get these tattoos branded them, 88-HH, the eighth letter of the alphabet, Heil Hitler. So 88 was um, like almost like the Third Reich, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> oh, underground, whatever. So, yeah. Oh, I know. This is what I mean. Like it was so crazy. It was in the media, in the paper, and all the rest of it. It's just so crazy. And I said, "Are you are you kidding me?" And it's just my luck, right? Like I go over there, honest guy. You know what I mean? I'm uh, going through some stuff. I had some demons, of course, um, when my sister passed, and I had some anger. So I was bashing more skulls than I probably should have been doing in Germany. So here they're looking. Had this big black guy coming over to Germany, beating up Germans, wearing number 88, and they thought I was taking the piss, eh? How about that for a story? <laughs> that's fucking ridiculous, man. Oh, that's too good. <laughs> um, fuck. That's, I, don't, I don't even know how I'd be able to react to that if, if that's what if they told me, yeah, you're wearing a Nazi number. Oh, it was crazy. I, you know, and I laughed it off. Hell, I'm a white guy living in a black man's body. My mom's from Scotland, for kind of love. Like, I grew up uh, all white and so forth, and... I grew up in Western Canada. I was born in Washington, D.C., but I grew up white on the farm, you know, throwing 10, 11 eye with the best of them. Right. 
excuse me. Um, well, on the topic of this, and it's kind of a taboo topic, but I think it's important. It's important, important to uh, get it out there. Did you ever have to face any racial adversity uh, throughout your career? Well, that's, I think that's a loaded question because obviously, you know, that was probably a very big contributing factor why I applied for the job that I'm in. If I had a dollar for every time, you know, some innocent kid, just full of ignorance, because you, you know, you can't, you know, just you're not born like that, right? Kids aren't born racist, right? So exactly. you blame their parents and the education that they're living in. Uh, but if I had a dollar for every time someone says, "Hey, where's your basketball?" or "Where's your football?" or "You're playing the wrong sport," or you know, you know, you're called the N-word and stuff, I, I think it just motivated me actually to prove that uh, you know that I could play, and I think it actually helped society help raise me in that aspect of it because it's a bit vicious. I grew up in a small town, um, and there was a lot of Duke boys up there and a lot of rednecks and. You know, it's either kill or be killed. You had to survive, right? So society kind of raises you in that aspect of it. And without that little bit of tough love as a young kid running home, being raised by five women in my household, you know, they were actually more vicious, I think, than being raised by five men. They, they're they the ones that uh, my mom put me in Taekwondo. She was in, in Taekwondo. My aunt is uh, her husband, Derek Hoyt, uh, just fantastic man, was a Canadian champion boxer. They, you know, they had me boxing, and then I started wrestling in high school. Um, it just was all come, you know, just formed by society. You know, if society was all loving and caring and, and, and roses, you know what I mean? You, you wouldn't have violence as a form of entertainment. You, you, it's not like I, I woke up one day and was like, oh, I want to go and beat people up for a living. You know what I mean? That, would, that sounds fun. Nobody wakes up and thinks like that. But right. when you love a game and you love a sport and you have passion... And that's the um, uh, job that you can apply for and get in with. And, well, you put in your resume and you hope for the best. Well, I mean, it's it's good that, that that stuff motivated you. You know, it's kind of a taboo topic to talk about, but I think it's important to get it out there that even in today's world, unfortunately, it still happens when it, it fucking shouldn't. But it is what it is, and, you know, it's it needs to get changed eventually, but I don't know if it ever will. I think, unfortunately, racism will always be out there uh, just because people are stupid. But it's good that it never it never got you down. It almost fueled your fire, and, you know, you proved all those fucking idiots wrong. So it's good to hear. Yeah, you know what? To be honest with you, um, uh, I had this conversation not too long ago. You know, the only problem that we have is that we can see. You know, if we didn't, if we could not see, we would not have judgment. We wouldn't be able to see color. We'd have a communication problem. That'd be it. But, you know, racism is taught. It's not something that you're born with. Exactly. Um, and it's the, it's the ignorance of people that uh, maybe are just uneducated from the generations prior. And I don't blame them because at the end of the day, um, the world is becoming more and more multicultural as we come. And we probably won't see it in our time, but um, it will come a, a time where uh, a full white Caucasian will be a minority in this world at one, day, one time or another, oh, if it's sure. not already. Right. Well, moving on from that. You know, I got a got a few more for you here, and I'll get you on your way. I know you said you're on your way to a practice, um, but you you get the contract with Vancouver. What was that like, kind of getting your second shot? This is almost what six years after your stint with the Maple Leafs. Well, to be honest with you, I actually thought I was contemplating of retiring when I was in Europe. I come home and I had a couple of years left of my deal over there, and I could have went obviously went on to play. You can play a lot longer over in Europe than you can. Um, over here due to the scheduling and um, the style of hockey. Um, so in my mindset, I was uh, contemplating actual retirement, not going back. And it was my oldest son, actually, that um, uh, that challenged me. 
he actually, we were sitting at the breakfast table, and I brought up the word retirement, that dad's not going to be a hockey player anymore because he doesn't want to go away and travel. And they were going on to, you know, go full-time into school and uh, start hockey themselves, and I wanted to coach them. And uh, he said, well, Dad, why don't you just play for the Vancouver Canucks, and then we could just live right here, and you can just play right here. Easy as and that. I, and I laughed at first. You know, this is coming out of a kid that was like six years old, right? And um, I kind of laughed in the beginning, and then I thought to myself, wow, because actually when I went to Europe, I kind of like had that stigmatism, like, well, once you go to Europe, you're done, just like everybody says, like, once you go to Europe and you live that lifestyle and play that easy schedule, um, and the fighting obviously wasn't as demanding, um, that you're, you're pretty much washed up, and I was kind of off the radar. And then I, I actually kind of thought about it. And um, at the time, I was talking to my wife, and she had said, why not? Like, in the worst-case scenario, if you don't make it, you retire in the best shape of your life. So I thought, okay. So here I phoned Tiger Williams, who was my uh, agent at the time. And I said, hey, Tiger. I said, how are you? Blah, blah. I got, um, you know, something crazy to throw by you. You know, do you think you can get me into Vancouver's camp? He's like, what are you talking about? And I said, well, I want another, sh- uh, you know, kick in the can. He's like, you're 30 years old. And I said, yeah, I understand that. And he says, I don't know if you got it anymore. I said, Tiger, I, seriously, I, I, I wouldn't be making the phone call if I didn't have the, the fire still, right? He says, okay, well, come on out tomorrow and uh, let's have breakfast and uh, we'll have a discussion. So next morning I get up. He was living in North End at the time. I drive out there and he makes me um, uh, sausage rolls with HP sauce and black coffee. <laughs> Typical Tiger, right? So I, uh, we're, we're, you know, we're reminiscing. And he said, you know, do you really think that you got this? And he's looking at me. He's like, I'm not going to make this phone call and represent you. If, you know, if you're never, you know, you're not going to, you know, deliver on the goods. I said, Tiger, listen, trust me. I got this. And uh, he said, okay, I can't guarantee anything, but start training. And uh, I'll call you, you know, if I can get you in. So I actually started training and uh, got into two days well prior to even knowing that I was actually going to get a look. And uh, we hadn't made the playoffs. I was playing in Oberhausen at the time in Germany. We missed the playoffs. Season ended early. And we had five months until training camp actually started with Vancouver. I was about four and a half months. So I actually started training, moved out of the house, went to my two-a-days. I was a little bit of a freak. You know, I won the NHL physical in 96 and with the Maple Leafs. And then uh, all of a sudden I um, decided this was it. I'm going to actually um, uh, win the physical in 02, six years later. So uh, I start training. Sure enough, I'm in Whistler. He gives me a call. He says, listen, Johnny, he goes, I got good news and I got bad news. What do you want to hear first? I said, I want to hear the bad news. He said, the bad news is that we're sending you to rookie camp. They're sending you to rookie camp. And I said, um, uh, okay, well, what's the good news? He goes, well, you're, well, I actually asked for the good news first. You're in, but they're going to send you to rookie camp. So I said, okay, no problem. We end up going to rookie camp. And I had more fights in rookie camp than I did in four years in Germany, practically. Just for the simple fact that I had to prove that, you know, I still had what a tip, you know, or what they were looking for. Right. Um, and sure enough, after that, getting into exhibition, uh, playing my first exhibition game in the Vancouver Canucks jersey in Rogers Arena, I fought Horder Chuck in May in the same game, and that was it. Uh, they and the ironic thing about it was that Tiger Williams found a quick my contract like that in, uh, in a room with uh, Brian Burke. And um, Nomis in the through. You there? Doesn't happen very often. Yeah, I hear oh, you. There we go. Sorry, I lost, I lost you for a second. <laughs> Not a problem. 
Um, going into yeah, the training like I just, camp. Like I said, I, oh, wait, go ahead. Yep. No, it was like, I, I didn't know if you heard. I, I you know, I sat in uh, with Nonis and uh, Burke and negotiated my own deal. Oh, wow. That's awesome. What was it like? What was Berkey like? I, I love, I love his mentality on the game. What was it like with Berkey? He's typical Harvard Law. He's actually absolutely ruthless, but he's fair. You know, at the end of the day, he calls it what it is. And you know what? He told me uh, right to my face. He said, you know what? Um, as much as I want to give you this contract, I don't. And I said, well, you know, that's a double-edged sword. What do you mean by that? He says, because by the time your kids are teenagers, I don't want to explain to them why that their daddy can't have a conversation with them if I sign you. So he actually knew as a 30-year-old at 195 pounds, the super heavyweights that I'd be fighting at 230, 240, 250, you know, like it, it, the guys were getting so much bigger from in the early 90s, late 80s and early 90s compared to, you know, the early 2000s and the mid-2000s. Oh, so he knew what I was up monsters then. Absolutely. And he knew that, um, uh, you know, I was going to get fed to the wolves as a 30-year-old with already 140 fights under my belt and um, that I, and I wouldn't back down. So he was actually a very educated man and actually looked after me. So, you know, I, I, I appreciated that, right? Are you there? Yep. All right, sorry about that. Not a problem. So, I, actually, you know, he, he was actually trying to look after me, and, you know, and all all said and done. But uh, at the end of the day, you know, I was in I was in tough. You know, 2 Vancouver was the best team in the world. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, I didn't get uh, my sniff, but uh, what an honor to be a part of the alumni for the last 15 years and doing events with them. It's just phenomenal i'm a big advocate of getting out and working in the community still and uh helping out the kids uh, we're big uh, supporters of sophie's place for abused women and children uh, my junior team supports all the local uh community kids and so forth um all year round and uh it's actually a, a blessing in disguise that's awesome man um did you ever did you ever like have to do homework going in well going into that rookie camp? Did you ever have to do some research on some guys you might have to fight or get like, you know, look at fight tapes or something like that? Well, to be honest with you, that that's the later generation that got more into the studying and that. Well, obviously me, growing up we didn't have that uh, really. Uh, and for me as just being a, a fighter, I have more actually street fights than I had actually hockey fights. So, you know, I, I just thought to myself, as long as I'm in great shape and I come in uh, you know, with great business you know, great fitness and, and really sharp that um, everything also just take care of itself. So I wasn't a huge advocate um, late in my career studying guys. I was more concerned about my own physical condition and uh, what I could bring to the table more than what they were bringing to the table. So in answer to that, I really didn't uh, do much studying. I just kind of um, uh, come into the situation in an old school way that, uh, you know, if you take care of your body, your body will take care of you, right? Exactly. Um well, I just want to ask you about a couple more guys here. Uh, winding down your AHL career, uh, you fought Mel Engelstad again. Well, the one fight you had with him, I think it was in the IHL, where you two go for a while. You almost have it's like you have two different fights going on. <laughs> you get broken up, and then you both discard the elbow pads, and then you go again. What was that like? I think that might have been in the IHL though. Well, uh, he was playing for Kirk Fraser. Oh, I might have lost you again. And he's playing front line, sword bears, and there was a lot of hype uh, because um, he had come in and, and basically wiped his ass with everybody in the league, um, but we hadn't played yet. And uh, so there was a lot of, you know, minor league hype to it, like, you know, who's going to win, like, this is going to be a big fight, like, Detroit's going to, uh, to Florida, and, uh, you know, they just put a lot of emphasis on this fight. So we actually knew we were 
were going to have this fight actually before it happened because it was going to be one of these things that it was going to kind of be who's the bona fide heavyweight in the league. And uh, here's another big guy, you know, 6'3", 230, and, you know, I'm fighting at 6'1", 194. Um, I knew that, uh, you know, I'm going to need to be rested for this and, and be, be able to go the distance. And, you know, at the end of the day, uh, I think we fought for just about two minutes. Like we had two fights in one fight. Yeah. And, uh, you know, kind of just give each other a pat on the head. And, the, you know, there wasn't a, a bum in the seats in the there. And, the, the, you know, the respect we got from both uh, our teammates and both the coaches, I think uh, we lived up to uh, what they were expecting. But I, I don't think that uh, Mel or I actually played for 10 days or even probably combed our hair for 10 days because it was pretty nasty if you've seen it. Yeah, it was. that was a great fight. I love that fucking thing or uh, that fight where – I just love the fact that the refs actually let you guys go for like a second round and even discard the elbow pads. That would never happen today. <laughs> yeah, well, they knew. You know what I mean? At the end of the day, they wanted to see it as well. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, well, last guy I'll ask you about is uh, one guy who I've just heard he punches like a fucking ton of bricks is Steve McLaren. What was it like fighting him? Oh, fuck. Yeah, what a beast he was, too. Not, not a very tall guy. He was like um, uh, six feet tall and you know, there's another guy you just got to be careful at, right? Like I said, I, I was more of a strategic fighter than a, a, kitchen, a kitchen sink thrower, right? And, uh, you know, I was lucky to be, a, a, you know, I was very elusive. And I tried not to get hit very much uh, when I did get into it. Um, but I was a great counterpuncher, and I think that uh, kind of, you know, gave me a lot of success. Uh, but if I was to actually stand in there and go toe-to-toe and punch for punch, I don't think I'd like my chances, but... Uh, I have a different style of um, on the loose type type of fighting, like I say, like a Darren Langdon that will kind of go the distance, you know, be a little loose of, and then um, uh, tag you with some nasty, you know, digits on the left or right because I could throw both, right? Yeah, you'd but, always yeah, seem like you'd start you know, off with the left and then you'd, like, halfway through the fight, you'd just switch to the right and then get, get the right hand going. Yeah, well, you know what? Just, you know, sometimes they get sick of taking left, so you got to give them some rights, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> give them so many lefts, they're just begging for a right. <laughs> That's right. Oh, man. Well, you end off your career in the uh, the EIHL, the Elite League over there. What was it like? Uh, what a treat. And I led the league in scoring with 39 goals. Um, I got an opportunity to play with two great Finnish players, Kimi Allruz and, and um, Miko Cuvanero. Actually, good friends of Ryurke Lume. We were at a, an alumni event here just the other day, and um, uh, he had said to say hi. He was back in Finland and run into him at a charity event over in Finland. Um, what an honor, like, actually to play over there. I, I, it was so much fun. I actually probably could have played for four or five more years over there, but at the end of the day, you know what I mean, uh, my kids were getting to the age where, you know, they needed a dad around full time, and, you know, after 13 years of, of playing, now you're you're kind of just starting to play for a, a paycheck, and got to start looking at the next chapter but uh if you know if you're someone who's looking to like actually wind down their career and, and have a good time and play only on weekends and uh and actually enjoy the game with great people um what a great league they pay in the british pound and they pay for everything and you know it was a real treat and got to actually enjoy the game at a, still at an elite level and got to play a ton absolutely and you even played in nottingham i consider myself a nottingham fan one of the guys um in our little hockey fight group on Twitter and Facebook is from Nottingham and he's a huge fight fan. And so he kind of got me into the Panthers. He sent me some Panthers DVDs. So I consider myself a, a Panthers fan. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. What a great uh, arena to play in. Great fans. And people don't realize it. Uh, those Brits are tough, man. Like they love their fighting over there. Oh yeah, they do. 
Oh, they love because then not only they like the uh, the hockey fights, but they're big into boxing over there too. So just, I mean, fighting in general, I'm pretty sure they're all just they're all crazy about it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to Anthony Johnson and uh, the Russo rematch. You know what I mean? Coming up in Saudi Arabia, I think it's in December. They just announced it, November or December. Absolutely. Well, man, I'll let you uh, let you hit the road here. I appreciate you taking the time for you know sitting down for an hour and talking with me um, about your career and just the game in general it's a real treat to be able to sit down and do this with you um there's always one question i ask everybody at the end of the interview and it's do you have any regrets um i think we all do but um i don't i don't think you talk about them i think that um at the end of the day if i was you know if go back and do it all over again i would approach it probably more uh, as a business earlier on in my career as more as uh, you know an exciting time in my life um, you know, I think as you get a little older, you kind of appreciate um, uh, the game of sports a little bit more, the magnitude of what goes into it, especially being an owner of a junior team now. Um, I think that I would just, um, I would embrace it um, a little bit differently. I don't know if I would play any different, but I was sure um, I have a lot more respect for the game that I did when I was younger. Um, um, you know, when you're young growing up, you're, you only know what you know, and, uh, you know, time is knowledge. And, uh, you know, when you're young, you don't... Uh, you know, have the knowledge that you have when you're older. And I, I would, I would change a few things, but um, as far as my love and passion for the game, I wouldn't change anything. I, I absolutely love it uh, for the good and the bad, the, you know, the good people and the good uh, people that support you. is fantastic. But the bad people also teach you to, re, you know, to respect the good people that are trying to help you. And I think that uh, without the bad people and along your journey, you have a hard time appreciating the good. So I love it. I, I'm a still big advocate of it. I'm a, I'm a hockey lifer. My kid uh, is in his senior year in northern Michigan. He was at the Vancouver Canucks uh, prospect camp here two and a half months ago, and we're hoping that uh, he has a good, solid year this year. Um, he's going into the season leading the NCAA in game-winning goals. Um, he's going to be a go-to guy for northern Michigan this year, and I hope that uh, the hockey gods are in his favor and see the work that he's put in, and he can become the first father-son uh, Vancouver Canuck. Absolutely, man. That'd be fucking what, – what an honor that would be, right? <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, man, I'll let you get going. I really – like I said, I appreciate you uh, taking the time to sit down and talk with me about all this. It's, you know, it's cool being able to talk to former players and get an inside look at the game and especially an inside look at the fights because it's so overlooked these days. So, I, again, I just wanted to thank you for, you know, coming on. Absolutely. My message to a lot of those guys out there, you know what I mean? Uh, PM me, add me on Facebook. would love to stay in contact with a lot of those guys, even the guys that um, uh, we met tilted and we never uh, and I'll actually um, uh, be- become friends. It would be great to get some kind of reunion or something going um, and show some respect for um, uh, a style of play that's probably one of the hardest jobs in professional sports. Absolutely. That would be – I mean, fuck, I'd have to be there too for the enfor- an enforcer reunion. Oh, man, that's crazy. Exactly. All right, man. Well, you have yourself a good night. I appreciate it. Okay. Thanks a lot, Alex. Hey, yeah, keep up the good work and um, uh, keep it alive. I know it's uh, starting to diminish and uh, there's less and less, uh, you know, love for it, but uh, there's a lot of respect there for it. So appreciate guys like you um, uh, showing guys like myself and all the other guys that have uh, spent their and dedicated their life to a form of entertainment that hasn't been easy. Um, and you, you know, showing the love that you do. So we appreciate Turn it. Turn out the lights. The part is over They say that all good things must end
Call it a night The part is over And tomorrow starts the same old thing again 